I came today to encourage somebody, some people who need to be encouraged. You're going to be encouraged today by the word of God. Paul's going to wrap up his letter by sharing some final prayer requests, some encouragements, and some additional commands to these young Thessalonian believers. Not young in age, but young in the faith. So let's jump right in. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Have your pen ready. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Would you underline, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul says, pray for us. And I love how he specifically asks them to pray for himself and Silas. He asks them to pray that as they teach God's word, it would be received, it would be welcomed, and it would spread rapidly, implying that Paul and Silas felt that their primary duty as ministers of Jesus was what? Teaching the word of God. Teaching the word of God. So I would ask the same thing, pray for me, church, and pray the same thing, that that I would teach God's word effectively, that it would be received, that it would be welcomed, and that it would spread rapidly. So would you write this down? Pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors wherever you go to church, whenever you go to church. Make sure that you're regularly praying for your pastors and that the word of God would be spoken through them in a way that is profitable and received with open hearts by people. Nothing blesses me more than anything than to know that there are people praying for me and to get an email from someone saying, hey, I'm praying for you, just wanted you to know that. It makes a bigger difference than you know. It makes a bigger difference than I know. And as we get later into this message, you're gonna be encouraged another way why you might wanna do that, even if you think, oh, it doesn't make a difference. It makes an enormous difference. Verse two, and then he says, and that we may be delivered. Would you underline delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. And in the original Greek, it's the faith. It's a definite article. He's saying, for not all have the faith. The literal translation of the word unreasonable, or however your Bible puts it, is actually the word absurd. And if you didn't pick up on it, Paul is implying that these absurd and wicked people were showing up in the church. They're showing up in the church. And the Thessalonians would have been familiar with this kind of problem because remember, Paul was writing this letter to correct some falsehoods that were being spread in the Thessalonian church by false teachers and false prophets, these absurd and wicked men. Satan was sending people into churches. The people he was sending in were not believers. They weren't really interested in becoming believers. Satan was sending them in that they might distract believers, lead believers astray, draw them into gossip and criticism, steal and suck the time and energy from leaders, take the focus away from making disciples. It's one of the things you always have to watch out for in ministry, and when I say ministry, I don't mean just paid, quote unquote, professional ministry. You have to watch out for this in the ministry that we're all called to. You've all heard the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Man, Satan loves that approach. He loves that approach. He loves sending people who have no real interest in Jesus, but they're gonna squeak a whole lot. They'd love to take up your time. They'd love to suck all your energy and just drain you spiritually so that you don't invest that time and energy where the Lord's actually called you to do it. How passionate was Jesus about this issue? Well, the Bible 
literally says, do not cast your pearls before swine. That's the language of the Bible. When you have someone, they have no interest in Jesus, but they want to argue with you. They want to debate with you. They want to take up your time. They want to question God. The Bible actually says, listen, that's like casting treasure before pigs. You're giving the best that you have to people that have no idea what to do with it. They don't want to receive it. They don't want to welcome it. Don't get caught up in that. That's what's going on here. And Paul says, man, we need to be delivered from these people. Pray for us, please. Because every city we go to, there's these energy vampires that Satan sends just trying to suck the life out of us. Satan still does that to this day. And you know what else strikes me about Paul's prayer request and these troublesome men? It strikes me that Paul says, Pray that God would deliver us from them. You see, Paul had come to learn that it's always best to let God defend you and defend your reputation, and it's best to let God help with some of these troublesome situations. Because if you start taking it on yourself, if you start getting into fights with these people and getting into debates with unreasonable and absurd people, you're gonna end up doing it all the time and you'll never stop. And you'll never get anywhere because you're casting your pearls before swine. If God wants your reputation to be defended, God will defend it. If God wants your reputation to suffer as Jesus' reputation suffered, then he will allow it. And so Paul says, listen, I'm not gonna come down there and start debating these false teachers and false prophets and, and these people. Just pray that God would deliver you and us from these kind of people. Because otherwise you're going right into the trap. You're trying to have a, a reasonable discussion with someone that Paul is describing as absurd. And it doesn't work out very, very well. But I can tell you from personal experience too, from painful personal experience, that it's far better, even if your reputation is being slandered, to let the Lord defend your reputation than to try and defend it for yourself. There are relationships in ministry and in life that I don't have anymore, that I wish I still had, but I don't because I couldn't resist the urge to either defend my reputation or the reputation of my ministry. And I just gotta set the record straight here. I gotta do that. And it wasn't worth it. If your reputation is under attack, pray that the Lord would deliver you from those attacks, but don't try to deliver yourself. That's exactly where Satan wants to draw your energy. Instead, just stay focused on what the Lord has called you to do. Keep your hand on the plow. Don't get distracted. That's the picture. You got work to do, you got a hand on the plow, and there's a crazy person yelling at you from the side of the field. Don't take your hand off the plow to go engage with the crazy person. Stay focused on what the Lord has called you to do, like Paul. And while you're doing that, you can pray, God, would you please deliver me from this idiot? You can do that. You can pray that. But just keep your hand on the plow. That's what Paul is saying right here. So write this down. Paul stayed focused on his mission and prayed that God would deliver him from distractions. That was his prayer. God, deliver me from distractions. And man, I'll just tell you, when you start a church, we experienced this in our first couple of years, and 
Every church I see start from scratch experiences this. You can always get a handful of people. If any of you guys went and started a church, you could get a handful of people because there are a handful of people that no church wants and they'll show up at your church and they'll be like, oh, you'll give me time, you'll talk to me? That's awesome, that's fantastic. Don't worry, I don't think that about any of you or past that point in case you're thinking, is that how he sees me? No, we're, we're long past that point, don't worry about that. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, man, pray that the Lord would deliver us from that sort of thing. And then I like verse three, underline this. But the Lord is faithful, underline the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now remember that the guys Paul is writing to, they are in serious life-threatening trials at this time. And Paul doesn't say, guys, don't worry. God is going to remove you from every tough situation you face. Anytime things get difficult in your life, God's gonna make a way of escape. He, he doesn't say that. The Bible says that about temptation. It doesn't say that about trials. Instead, Paul says, guys, listen, God is gonna strengthen you in every difficult situation you face. No matter how many times we hear it, no matter how many times we read it in the Bible, we all forget all the time that God grows us in our trials. And if the point of this life is becoming more like Jesus, the technical word is sanctification, growing to become more like Jesus, then the point has to be, as we said back in 1 Thessalonians, it has to be graduating trials, not escaping trials. And that's what Paul says. Hey, your hope is that the Lord is faithful. Verse four, get ready to underline again. And then he says, and we have confidence in the Lord. Underline, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. And that would include the commands that Paul gave them back in 1 Thessalonians 5 and the ones he's gonna give in this chapter. Paul wishes that he could be with these young Thessalonian believers. Their young faith is being attacked by false teachers, false prophets, and very real persecution. And I love how Paul comforts them and himself in his absence. In verse three he said, but the Lord is faithful. And in verse four he says, we have confidence in the Lord. And can I encourage you to cling to those two statements, to confess those two statements over and over again when things in your life that are beyond your control are not going well. There's incredible comfort and incredible power and incredible hope in these words. No matter what you're going through, but the Lord is faithful and we have confidence in the Lord. And the power in those statements is that they have nothing to do with your circumstance or with you. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It doesn't matter how you're doing. What matters is that the Lord is faithful and we have confidence in the Lord. Verse five, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Some translations will say the patience of Christ. Other Bibles will say the patient waiting for Christ. I checked it out and couldn't learn anything. I couldn't figure it out which one is actually correct. I think they're both biblically accurate statements so I'm not really that concerned about it being wrong. In times of trial, we've gotta stay connected to the love of God and we gotta remember where we're going. We need to be living for the coming of Jesus, but we also need to be patient like Jesus. And here's what I mean by that statement, being patient like Jesus. Jesus went through a life and death that were more difficult than, than anything we'll ever go through. 
And he didn't quit because he understood that all of it was for a purpose so glorious and amazing, it would all be worth it. And the same is true for us. All of our trials, all of our difficulties are for a purpose more glorious and amazing than we could possibly imagine. God doesn't waste a single hurt. He promises that he's doing good in every situation, even the ones that are entirely our doing. No season of suffering is pointless for those who belong to the Lord. It will bear fruit one way or another. So we are to be patient in our sufferings, just as Jesus was patient in his earthly life. Write this down, an understanding of eternity should cause us to live with patience in suffering. Patience in suffering. You know, any time that I find myself thinking, man, God, would you just come back already? Come back, I'm, I'm getting impatient. You remember that the word of God says, why hasn't he come back yet? Because he's being patient. Doesn't want anyone to perish, wants everyone to come to repentance. And then I always change my thinking and I go, I sure am glad that the Lord was patient enough to give me time to get in. So if he wants to wait a little bit more, that's okay. I'd love him to come right now, but I get it. Patience is important. Now Paul is gonna shift gears and deal with an issue that he has seen plaguing the Thessalonian church. He's given them the nice warm hug, given them the encouragement and the comfort, and now he's gonna just give them a shot right to the face with a right hook right here. He says, we gotta talk about something, Thessalonians. There's an issue we gotta talk about, verse six. But we command, would you underline command, not suggest, not encourage, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. That word disorderly means out of ranks. It means not following given instructions. It means being insubordinate. It's not only talking about someone who's not doing what they should be doing, it's talking about someone who is doing what they should not be doing. And we're gonna talk more about this pretty shocking instruction from Paul when we get down to verses 14 and 15. But for now, let's read a little bit more and discover what the specific issue is that Paul is referring to. Verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now you might remember back in 1 Thessalonians, we talked about the rights that Paul had as a minister of the gospel to be financially supported by the churches he had planted and the churches that he ministered at. And we talked about the way that some of those churches provided for Paul. We talked about how he received financial gifts while he was in Thessalonica from other churches that he had established. And the idea is that they were significant financial gifts. It was a two-day journey to get the gift to him. So it wasn't like they were saying, here's a $20 gift card for McDonald's. They sent someone on a two-day journey to get this financial gift to Paul. So we can safely assume that in modern terms, we're talking a gift of at least several thousand dollars is the idea. And yet here we find that Paul was working side jobs, at least some of the time he was in Thessalonica. We find out that he didn't accept any free meals from anyone while they were in Thessalonica. Well, why? Why? He tells us in verse nine, not because we didn't have authority. So he says, we didn't work because we didn't have the right to financial support from you. We did. He says, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. 
You see, something was going on in Thessalonica among the people that caused Paul and Silas to look on and say, these guys need an example of what it looks like for a believer to work. In the Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture, which, which still dominated the world at the time culturally, work was despised. It was looked down upon, especially manual labor. And that is a very, very different philosophy from the model of work and the place of work in the scriptures, where the scriptures describe work as something that's good for men to do, it's good for people to do. But apparently these Thessalonians were eager for the opposite. They were eager to look for any reason they could find to not work a job. And so Paul and Silas felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to provide an example so that they could say, look guys, we're the planners of your church. We're the leaders. We're the pastors. We're the apostles. And yet, we're still more than willing to roll up our sleeves and work. So you've got no excuse. And, and not only that, do you remember what had happened to Paul just before he arrived in Thessalonica for the first time? He had received a Roman beating in the city of Philippi. He'd been beaten within an inch of his life, literally. He would have been permanently disfigured from this beating, scarred, still scabbed over. And so when Paul is working a manual labor job to give an example to them, he really takes away any excuse they have for not working. I mean, when you look over at him and he's got like bloody scars all over him and they're still oozing and he's there working, you can't really be like, Oh, my back's a little sore today. I'm just not feeling it. You can't really do that. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, write this down. This is why they wanted to provide the example so they could give this instruction. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Neither shall he eat. Now please understand what this verse says. The issue is willingness to work, not ability to work. There are some people who desire to work, but they're not able to work, either full-time or at all, or they can't do certain types of work because of health issues, handicaps, injuries, other factors beyond their control. That's not what we're talking about. That's not who Paul is speaking to. He's talking about the person who could work, but chooses not to because they felt that that was beneath them. It was beneath the station in life that they desired. They'd rather mooch off the system or even worse, other believers. So here's what Paul is getting at, write this down. Those who are able to work but unwilling should not be indulged by the church. Should not be indulged by the church. It seems that there were people who refused to work certain types of jobs but we're still willing to show up empty-handed at the communion meal and go, oh man, I've been looking forward to this potluck for a long time. I'm really gonna dig in this evening. And they were bringing nothing because they weren't working any jobs. They were still willing to show up unannounced at people's houses and say, guys, koinonia, the fellowship of the Lord, here I am, let's eat together. Why don't you welcome me in? Let's see what the Lord wants to do this evening. I'm thinking steak. This is what's going on. They're possibly saying things like, listen, guys, 
I don't expect you to get this because you're not as spiritually mature as me, but the rapture is going to happen any day. Um, There's no point in starting a new career path when Jesus is coming for his church at any moment. That's just foolishness. I I need to just spend more time praying. So, uh, no, I'm not going to get a job right now. And Paul says, here's a simple rule for you guys among the congregation. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It's just that simple. The picture is the person who wants prayer or financial support from the church or other believers because they're unemployed, but they're unwilling to do certain kinds of work. You know, a church member says, hey man, my my construction company's looking for someone to help dig some fence post holes for a few weeks weeks and possibly a few months. And I could, I mean, I could probably talk to my supervisor and, and get you that job and their response is, yeah, um... I'm just not in that kind of season right now. I'm looking for a a new wineskin kind of thing that the Lord is doing and that's just not, that's not resonating with my spirit right now, that kind of work, you know what I mean? That's the idea here. When I lived in Florida, our church was very good friends with uh, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, which is a huge church, thousands of people and they they would always have and they would tell us about uh, an endless stream of people coming to the church who were uh, down on their luck, out of money, you know, um, out of work. If you don't help me today, I'm going to die, sort of thing. And they had a very interesting approach. They would always refer them to their groundskeeper because they had like a 50-acre church property. And the groundskeeper would tell them, hey, the church will give you five bucks today so you can buy a bus pass, get home tonight and get here tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Show up at 8 a.m. tomorrow, come work with me for the day. If you do, we'll give you a a fair wage for your work, and we'll buy you a bus pass for a week. You can come the rest of the week and work with me, we'll pay you for that too. And if you keep doing that, we'll give you work for a couple more weeks, and you can come work with us, and we'll we'll start with that and then see what else we can do to help you out. And they always had a plan that if if a person did that, and they worked like faithfully for four weeks, they were gonna do everything they could to help this person find an apartment, get established, get on some sort of life track he said over 90 percent of the time people would take the five bucks and never ever show up again never show up again Paul and Silas did humble work in Thessalonica they did manual labor because they looked at the Thessalonians and they said listen you guys need an example of what it looks like to work what it means to be diligent and faithful in whatever opportunities the Lord gives you at this moment that's what you need Because when people don't work, problems start happening. Problems start happening. Have you ever heard of the expression, idle hands are the devil's tools? When you got too much time on your hands, you rarely end up doing something good with it. None of us with an abundance of free time say, oh, finally, more time to minister to the poor. It's not usually what happens. That's why when man fell into sin, God essentially said, listen, You're going to have to work to make food now. Because now that the human race has fallen into sin, I'm going to have to keep you busy or you're just going to get into even more trouble. And the way we work is also part of our witness to the world around us. Christians are supposed to be the hardest working people of greatest integrity that any employer could find. And too often they're not. I don't know about you, but if I ever see a business that has like the Christian fish on it, I'm always like, oh no. It's like, oh no, because if I have them come do my plumbing, they're going to do a subpar job. And then when I try to talk to them about it, they're going to start calling me brother. I just know like that's what's going to happen. Brother, listen, 
listen, we gotta, it's just like, how, how about you let the fact that you're a great plumber speak for itself, right? How about that be your testimony and, and, and then you share Jesus? Because Jesus otherwise might be like, yeah, don't, don't put my name on that. Like people you see driving terrible with a fish on the back, I just wanna go and like take that thing off. I'm like, if you're gonna drive like that, don't put Jesus' name on that, okay, come on. I know that you might be trying to meet him sooner, but it's not good for his reputation right now. Work is good, and believers should work. I know you've seen this in people that you know, even when it comes to retirement. My counsel to every man who is about to retire is you better have something to keep yourself busy. You better have, I don't care what it is, take up fly fishing, go to the mall and be one of those old men that just sit there with other men of your same race and just do nothing. I don't know if, if you guys have noticed that at Coquitlam Center. When, 20 years ago when I would go to the mall, it was like these no good teens hanging around the mall. Now you walk, there's no teens in the mall. There's the seated area and it's all the Persian dudes. Then all the Chinese dudes are over there. Then like all the white old European dudes are over there and they're there and they just like sit there with their coffee and their newspaper. I'm like, man, all these no good old people hanging out at the mall. You got nothing to do. But you know, I look, and now, now I walk past and I go, you know, you know what they're doing? They're saving their marriages. That's what they're doing. Because their wife is like, I gotta get you out of the house. Because there's only so much time that it's profitable for a couple to be together. So listen, if you're gonna have a ton of spare time in your retirement, you gotta find something to do or you're just gonna get yourself into trouble and argue with your spouse. That, that wise counsel right there, okay? Some of you are like me and you're like, don't worry, Jeff. I've thought way ahead. I've saved nothing for retirement, so I'm not going to retire. Way ahead of you. That's, ex- that's the exact approach that I'm taking. Uh, verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. And in the original language, there's all kinds of wordplay going on there. Paul's basically saying, some of you, instead of being busy, you're just busy bodies. And the idea is that they're, they're, with all their free time that they have from not working a job, they're just going around getting into everyone's business, stopping at people's houses to eat food and spread gossip, getting together in groups to talk about everything wrong with the church and with the pastors and, and how they can't believe that so-and-so is raising their kids like that and did nobody teach them how to behave themselves, stuff like that. And this is what Paul has to say to those folks in verse 12. He says, now those who are such We command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, I don't know about you, but I always knew I was in trouble with my mom if my full name came out. If I hear my mom say, Jeffrey Paul Thompson, oh man, things are about to get real. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but Paul is using that same approach here. He's using the full name of Jesus. He used it a few verses ago, and he uses it here again now. He says, we exhort you, or we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's getting serious, and he says, work in quietness and eat your own bread. In other words, get a job, mind your own business, and don't be a mooch. That's what he's saying to them here. And I appreciate Paul's candor in this area of church life because central to following Jesus is the idea of living your life as a giver and not a taker. Christians are to follow the example of Jesus who did not come to be served but to serve. And wherever people have that mentality, the idea that we're to serve and be givers sooner or later, every now and then, people show up in a church, like we said earlier, who have no friends. 
And I'll be real blunt. You get to know them and you're like, I understand why. I know exactly why. It's because they're lazy. They never do anything for anyone else. They never invest in any relationship. They never serve anyone else. But they love church because they find, man, I can come to church and people will still talk to me. People will invite me over for dinner. Sometimes the church gets wise to it and then that person will come to the pastor and say, listen, man, your church is not friendly. And I've had that. And I've had to tell people, well, have you, have you tried being friendly? Have, have you invested anything in any relationship? Have you done anything for anyone, served anyone in any way? Conversation gets really awkward really fast. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, everyone is welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. But everyone in the church needs to be willing to work. Everyone in the church needs to be willing to serve others. That's what it means to be part of the church. And everyone in the church needs to give up any of those busybody habits or practices that they might have had before. That's what Paul is saying, and I appreciate his candor. Verse 13, he says, but as for you, brethren, speaking to those believers who aren't living as deadbeats, now underline this, he says, do not grow weary in doing good. Underline that, do not grow weary in doing good. And by the way, that good included being patient with those moochers who were out of order. He was saying, guys, listen, set them straight, don't put up with it, but also, Be patient even with them, even with them. Do not grow weary in doing good. This is a a precious, precious verse in exhortation because the truth is we do grow weary of doing good sometimes, don't we? We all grow weary of doing good. We all get tired sometimes of sowing and sowing and sowing and sometimes feeling like we're never gonna reap. I want to ask you to take a journey with me to uh, number seven in your Bible because as a pastor, I've always learned that nothing hypes up a crowd like the book of Numbers. Uh, It's close to the front of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers chapter seven. It's worth turning there. And we're just going to start this riveting chapter in verse one. It says, now it came to pass, number seven, verse one, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord. We'll jump ahead to verse 12 and find out what this offering was. And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nishan, the son of Aminadab, from the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering." One gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amenadab. Gripping stuff. On the second day, 
Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the leader of Issachar, presented an offering. For his offering, he offered one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. One gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering. One kid of the goats as a sin offering, and as the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nathanael, the son of Zuar. Praise the Lord. On the third day, Eliab, the son of Helon, leader of the children of Zebulun, presented an offering. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year, and a partridge in a pear tree. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Helon. At this point, you're thinking, Jeff, on, on one hand, I'm so proud of you for getting through so much scripture in one message. I've never seen anything like this. On the other hand, Jeff, it goes on listing the representatives of each tribe and listing every single thing that was a part of their offering. Verse 30, on the fourth day, Elizer. Verse 36, on the fifth day, Shalumiel. Verse 42, on the sixth day, Eliasaph. Verse 48, on the seventh day, Elishama. Verse 54, on the eighth day, Gamaliel. Verse 60, on the ninth day, Abadan. Verse 66, on the tenth day, Ahazer. Verse 72, on the eleventh day, Pagiel. Verse 78, on the twelfth day, Ahira. And if you didn't figure it out after I read the description of the offerings made by each of the first three men, here's what's interesting. They all gave the exact same offering. And just in case we can't do the math, let's pick it up in verse 84, which helpfully does the math for us. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. 12 silver platters, 12 silver bowls, and 12 gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels and each bowl 70 shekels. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 gold pans full of incense weighed 10 shekels apiece according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering were 12 young bulls, the rams 12, the male lambs in their first year 12 with their grain offering and the kids of the goats as a sin offering 12 and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls the rams 60 the male goats 60 and the lambs in their first year 60 this was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed just thrilling stuff right thrilling thrilling stuff and if we're honest it's more like Jeff that was ludicrously redundant that was repetitive it was unnecessary uh it was boring uh why not just say the first guy brought all this stuff so did the other 11 guys is, is there no hebrew word for ditto that could have been employed here <laughs> number seven is the second longest chapter in the bible 
The first is Psalm 119. Many of you are familiar with it. It contains well-known verses like, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? And your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119 extols the, the beauty and the power of the scriptures. A worthy subject for a long chapter in the Bible, I think we'd all agree. But number seven, why does something so boring and redundant and unpractical get so much ink in the scriptures? Was Moses just tired that night and he's like, that, that's enough editing for today. Well, and did he forget about it and it was just an oversight? Why not more scriptures on marriage or raising kids, you know, like practical stuff? Well, it might be boring to us. It might be tedious to us. It might be a pointless list to us. But I believe it's in there to make the same point that Hebrews 6.10 makes in the New Testament. I put it on your outlines. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You see, God says this list, this list might bore you, but it delights me. And it delights me to record for all eternity what people gave to me, what people did for me in their earthly life. It's not a waste of space to me. I took great pleasure in recording what each one of these men brought to me. You see, I have cards that my kids made me at various different ages. I have pieces of art that they gave me, crafts they made me. And can I tell you what they're worth to me? They're priceless. They are priceless because they're expressions of love from my kids to me. And I, I enjoy remembering those gifts. But if I sat down with you and, and showed them all to you, you'd get bored really fast. I mean, you'd fraudulently pretend that you weren't because you're a good Christian, but, but you'd be bored really fast. Which, side note, I was writing that and I just thought about this. I said, you know what is one wonderful development in life that has happened because of technology? You no longer run the risk of going over to someone's house for dinner and having them say, listen, I gotta show you the slides from our last vacation. Do you guys remember this? I don't think my kids will ever know like the sheer terror of someone then setting up a projector with their family vacation and they had like the, the rolls that had all the slides and, and you always looking, right? You're looking like, okay, how many sleeves are we talking here? How many of these round things? And they, they come and they stack like six of them. You're like, oh no, oh no. You know, and, and up goes like the white bed sheet and there's the projector show and they're like, this is our uh, Uncle Greg and uh, I know you don't know him, but he's such a funny guy and you just be there in the dark. Mom, dad, can we please go home? <laughs> because it's precious to them, but it's not precious to you, right? Not at all. You're like, they're not, they're not my kids. <laughs> they're great, but they're not my kids. As incredible as this may sound, your heavenly father delights in recording and revisiting the gifts that you give to him. And not only that, but he actually has plans to reward you for every single one of those things. That's one of the reasons he's making a note of all of them. And while it's true that God needs nothing from us, he's perfectly content within himself, within the Trinity. Incredibly, because we are his children, we have the ability to bless him. 
It's incredible when you think about it. We have the ability to be a blessing to our Heavenly Father. Whatever you do for the Lord, whatever you give to the Lord will not be forgotten. It is recorded in the records of heaven no matter how big or how small. Every time your flesh wanted to do one thing but you chose instead to listen to God's Spirit in you. Even reluctantly, even begrudgingly, but simply because you love the Lord and you want to live for him. He made a note of it in the records of heaven. When you want to verbally eviscerate your spouse for using the last of the toilet paper but not changing the roll, but you instead change it yourself and forgive them because you chose the path of servanthood, it's recorded in the records of heaven. When the unspoken game of trash can Jenga is in its final stages, you know what I'm talking about. And the war is on to see who's gonna have to take out the trash. Who, who's gonna be the person who can't fit in one more piece? And you just do it because you wanna serve your family. It's recorded in the records of heaven. I may not have pure motivations in sharing these examples knowing my wife is gonna to listen to this later. I love you, babe. Uh, even when others don't see your service, even when others don't see your service or know about your sacrifice of time or effort or finances, God knows, he sees, and he takes note. What did Jesus say? It's on your outlines. He said, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Do not grow weary in doing good, because the day is coming when you're gonna see the Lord face to face, and if you've lived your life for him, he's gonna say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus also said, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you get what Jesus is saying there? He's saying everything that you do for him, no matter how insignificant it may seem to you at the time, will be remembered by the Lord. When you help out in the children's ministry and you're thinking, they're not taking in a single word I'm saying. I, I literally have no idea what we're even doing here. They're having a great time, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know, what are we doing? Or if you're making coffee, or stacking chairs, whatever it might be, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and he takes note. From that first penny that a child gives to the Lord from their own allowance, to that tithe that is given as an adult when it's difficult to give. And I know sometimes it's difficult to give because there's so many other things competing for those dollars. The Lord knows. He's got it written down somewhere. Every single cent and he delights in it. He delights in it. Not because he's short of cash but because he says they trusted me here, they trusted me here, they trusted me here, they trusted me here. Those of you who are being called by the Lord right now to, to serve and be faithful in, in difficult situations, difficult marriages, or as caregivers to someone, or in challenging family situations, or, 
Or maybe you have a child or children who require very special attention and it's, it's draining. And you hang in there because you know that it's what Jesus is calling you to do. Just know this, the Lord knows. He knows. He sees, he perceives, he records it and he's blessed by it. And you will be rewarded for it. And perhaps someone will say, well, Jeff, you know, as long as I, as long as I get into heaven, I'm good. I, I don't really care about any eternal rewards. Listen, you will. You will. When you get to heaven and you're standing face to face with Jesus in glory, you're not going to think, oh, man, I, uh, I really should have added on to my house instead of giving that money to missions. Should have bought a new car instead of tithing. Should have spent more time at the lake on Sundays and less time in church. When you see the Lord, and I'm telling you the truth, you're going to see the Lord. You're going to see the Lord. Possibly very, very soon. And certainly life is very short. But when you see the Lord and he opens these books in which everything that you've done for him and given to him has been recorded. And when he's distributing rewards and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, your heart will leap with ecstasy, ecstasy. But if your page is empty or close to it because you thought you wouldn't care about that moment, you're gonna find yourself thinking, why did I waste so much time and energy and money on things that were absolutely meaningless? And your heart is gonna break. Yes, even in heaven, even in the presence of the Lord, because the Bible doesn't say there's no tears in heaven. You know that? It's not what it says. What does it say? It says he will wipe away every tear. Meaning actually the exact opposite. That at least one time there's going to be tears in heaven. Why? I think in all likelihood it's because of this exact moment. Because there will be believers in heaven who when God's notebooks are opened and rewards are distributed will realize that though they believed in the Lord, they wasted their lives. They wasted their time, their talent, their treasure, their resources. So don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't worry if no one in this life knows. Don't worry if no one in this life sees. Don't worry if your service gets no recognition and no reward in this life. The Lord knows, the Lord sees, and the Lord will reward you in eternity. And when he does, you'll be so glad to have your reward there rather than here and now. Would you write this down? The Lord takes note of everything we do for him, that he might reward us in eternity. He takes note of everything we do for him so that he can reward us in eternity. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about taking in the word of God. The second longest chapter in the Bible is all about giving to God in service and in practical ways. So do you see the process we take in the word and then out of what's been revealed to us in the word of God, we give out, just as the leaders of the tribes did in Numbers 7. Paul goes on in verse 14 and he says, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle. Note that person and do not keep company with him. 
that he may be ashamed. Specifically, if anyone continued to refuse to work and insisted on continuing to be a busybody, Paul told the church members, don't hang out with them at all until they repent. Now don't miss verse 14 because it's, it's really heavy. And it messes with what a lot of modern Western Christians would like to believe, the Bible says. It really messes with it. Because we love in the Western church to allow anyone to do anything and then call it grace. No, I'm not being, we're not being permissive. We're not in favor of sin. We're just being gracious as though that's what grace is. And we love that sort of cheap grace because it doesn't cost us anything. Everybody likes you when you approve of everything they're doing, right? There's no hard conversations. There's no hurt feelings. There's no accusations of being judgmental. Way easier to do that and then just say, here's the thing. I'm just guilty of being gracious. Sue me. It's a much, much easier way out. But, but verse 14 messes with that because this is a principle Paul is giving them that doesn't just apply to those unwilling to work. This would apply to any believer who was intentionally rejecting the teachings of Scripture, rejecting the things that Paul had told them to do, and was unrepentantly continuing in that behavior. And Paul says, listen, don't hang out with them at all. And then he even says why. He says, so that they might be ashamed. And a better translation of that word ashamed would be convicted, because that's, that's the concept here. Paul says, don't hang out with them that they might be convicted so that they would begin to understand the gravity of their sin. That what they're doing in living in unrepentant sin is so serious, it's damaged their relationship with the church, with the community of believers. They're hurting all believers by continuing to sin like this. You see, conviction draws a person back to the Lord so that the relationship can be restored. Conviction draws us back to the table of communion so that we can repent, find forgiveness, and be freed from our shame and walk in a restored relationship with the Lord. Shame drives a person away from the Lord so that they don't have to confront their sin. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Shame comes from Satan. And so Paul says, listen, when a believer refuses to live like a believer, you're not to hang out with them so that they'll become convicted. Even if they say, you're being unloving and you're being judgmental, it'll be because deep down they know that they're sinning against God. They're just mad that you won't make them feel better about it. It's heavy. It's a heavy, heavy command. Write this down. When a believer is living in unrepentant sin, other believers are not to hang around with them as though everything were okay. When a believer is living in unrepentant sin, other believers are not to hang around with them as though everything were okay. And then in verse 15, he says, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Would you underline brother? You see, this person's still a brother. They're still a believer. So your job, Paul is saying, in your own heart is to make sure that you're motivated by love for this person. In other words, their, their sin and their behavior and their lack of repentance should grieve you. It should trouble you because you don't want to see them hurt themselves. 
You don't want to see them hurt the people God has surrounded them with in life, and you don't want to see them hurt the reputation of Jesus. Paul says you got to remember they're still part of the family. They're still a brother. They're still a sister. So make sure that you're keeping any type of scorn or, or arrogance or haughtiness out of your heart as you deal with this. Even as you say, I, I can't hang out with you, it's not because I'm better than you. Make sure that you don't move into that. Make sure you're motivated by love. It's about holding the line against sin while still holding out the hope of reconciliation. The world doesn't understand this concept at all, at all. And so sadly, when a believer has started really listening to the world and taking their cues from the world, sometimes they can't understand it for a while either. In fact, one of the most frequent knocks against the church that we've all heard is, Oh, you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. They don't actually practice what they preach. And I've shared this before. The irony, though, is when the church does say we've actually got to practice what we preach, when the church does confront sin in its own ranks, when the church does actually hold its own people accountable, it's then accused of being judgmental. You see, the church can't win if its goal is pleasing the world. But that's okay, because the goal of the church is not pleasing the world. The goal of the church is pleasing Jesus. And all we're talking about is that the people who make up the church, the people who come together and say, we've committed to follow Jesus, have to hold each other accountable to actually live like we're following Jesus. That's all we're talking about. And yet there are people I run into all the time who have a, a story of how they were hurt at their last church. And you get into it and you find out that, oh, actually what, what they considered hurt was that their last church told them they actually need to live like Christians. And they were so offended and hurt by this, so blindsided by this. And so they leave the church, they slander the church, and I don't understand it because it would, it would be like me saying, guys, listen, I, I just got to get something off my chest. I am, I am so mad at my CrossFit gym. In fact, I don't know if I'll ever go back. Oh, Jeff, what's going on? What was it? Well, you know what? Every single time I went there, they were pushing exercising. Like every single time. And some days I was like, guys, listen, I, I'm just not into that today. I just don't have that conviction today. And, and they would respond always with something like, well, well, that's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. That's what this is here for. It's what it's all about. So judgmental. And they even had the arrogance to then say to me, hey, Jeff, if you want to be a part of this community, you're probably going to have to get on board with this exercising thing. I mean, can you believe that? Like they're so narrow-minded and judgmental. So finally, I just decided, you know, I don't, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. And I left. Worst gym ever. And we would all say, um, Jeff, um, people work out at a CrossFit gym. That, that's, that's what they do there. Why would you expect anything different? We'd all understand that. Yet when it comes to Christianity in the church, sometimes even Christians are outraged, shocked, wounded, and, and hurt that there might be an expectation for us to actually live like we're following Jesus. Like we're actually supposed to live as though what Jesus wants is more important than what we want. And that's all Paul is talking about here. He's saying, listen, when someone 
in your church who says they're a believer begins to say, yeah, I know that's what Jesus wants me to do. I know that's what his word says. I'm just not gonna do it. And they won't repent. Paul is saying, you gotta deal with that. You gotta let them know, well, well, that's what we do as the church of Jesus. And so we can't hang out with you and pretend that you're a believer and we're believers and everything's fine when you're unwilling to do the very things that make a person a believer. It's a difficult word, but, but a very, very simple one too. In verse 16, he wraps up here and he says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. See, it's generally understood that, that Paul employed the most cutting edge technology of the day, which was dictating to a professional scribe possibly also because he may have had this eye ailment that he refers to in other places. And at this point of the letter, he picks up the pen to actually write the benediction at the end himself in order to fully authenticate this as a Pauline epistle. So remember, there had been that forged letter passed around the church. So Paul was saying, this is a legit letter. Here's my handwriting. Here's my signature. You can trust it. And some Bible scholars suggest that when he did this at the end of his letters, it likely might have been in very, very big print because his eye was kind of messed up and he couldn't see necessarily real well. And Paul actually mentions that when he signs off at the end of the letter of Galatians. He writes, see how big my handwriting is. And then Paul adds his signature, his trademark, which is a greeting that always goes something like this in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. I'll just say this in, in conclusion. We're gonna have a, a chance to take communion and, and worship. We'll do two or three songs together in just a minute. Uh, really, really take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. And, and maybe those, those areas in life where you're just getting weary of doing good. It's getting old in that one area. Would you just say, Lord, help me. Just give me fresh energy. God, help me to stay faithful. I want to, I know we all want to. Say, Lord, just help me because I want to bless you. I want to give you more to put in that notebook, more to make a note of. You know, we, uh, we live in a world where, where, where people live for the immediate recognition of now. They're, they're keeping track of how many likes they get on social media. As Christians, we're supposed to have a picture in our head of, of one day being with our heavenly Father I know this isn't actually what's gonna happen, but I'm just giving you the vibe of things here. In my head, I imagine, you know, I imagine climbing into his lap like a kid and opening a scrapbook like you'd open a photo album when you were a kid and, and look at it with your parents. And in there is everything, everything that you did for God, everything that you gave to him. And he just goes through it and he just says, yeah, I remember that. I like that. I enjoyed that. That blessed me. That honored me. That made me proud. Well done, well done. We're gonna have a moment like that if we live for the Lord. It's gonna happen. So live for that moment. Live for that moment. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Paul used probably my favorite word in the whole Bible only once. It only shows up one time. It's the word maranatha. And it simply means the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And so as we wrap up first and 
Second Thessalonians. That's what we would end with. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Live accordingly. You're really gonna see the Lord. You're really gonna be with him. I promise it's gonna happen. So live for that moment. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the hope that your word gives us. Lord, thank you that not only do you not account to us all of our sins, not only have you completely cleared the record of every failure, every mistake, every wrong that we've ever done, but on the flip side, Lord, you have made a note of everything that we've done for you and given to you, and you're still tracking it. Lord, I pray that our love for you would motivate us to say, I want to fill volumes of those books by living my life for the Lord. Every day, every moment, I don't want to waste it. I want to be a blessing to my heavenly Father. Father, I thank you so much for every person in this room who loves you and serves you in ways that are unseen are unknown by other people, but Lord, you see, and you know, and you make a note of every single thing. Father, I pray that you would renew strength this evening, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us afresh with the energy of your Spirit, Lord, that we would not serve or seek to serve in our own strength, but in the strength of your spirit, empowered by your spirit, Lord God. I pray for anyone who's on the edge of giving up or losing hope, feeling like they've sowed and sowed and sowed and there's, there's never gonna be a time of reaping. Lord, would you just restore hope right now in the name of Jesus? Would you give power where it feels like strength is gone? And so, Lord, as your word says, if we'll wait on you, you will renew our strength. So, Lord, help us to do that right now, to wait on you, to just receive from you. Church, maybe this is, this is just one of those moments where all you can just say is, Lord, you know. You know. Because he does. He knows. And just allow him and his spirit to minister to you and to fill you with hope and strength and resolve once again. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.